This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by 23andMe.com. With 23andMe's genetic service, you can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, or Africa. Visit 23andMe.com slash fool. That's the number 23andme.com slash fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hi, bro. Hello, Allison. You're looking tan from your cruise. I am not, but thank you anyhow. <laughs> they don't know the difference. They can't see you. You could have yes, just let it slide. I have a great tan. Thank you very much. And a full head of hair. On today's episode, we're discussing the Dow Days of Summer. Bro came up with that title. We are in the second longest bull market run in history, but economic uncertainty abounds. What is an investor to do? Well, Ron Gross is here with his advice. We'll also answer your question about selling off those dusty stocks you keep lying around and analyze the omens around investing during a solar eclipse. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers, and today's question comes from Larry. Larry writes, what should I consider doing with the 20 stocks I bought from 2006 to 2008 through the Motley Fool Hidden Gems and Million Dollar Portfolio (laughs) newsletters? So, for those of you who don't know, this is this is a question that he might as well have written, Dear Ron Gross. <laughs> and it has been sitting in our mailbox for this day. You actually ran Million Dollar Portfolio for a really long time. I did. Good uh, times. So, any stocks that Larry bought from 2006 to 2008, uh, do you just want to put out a disclaimer and say, not my fault? If uh, if it didn't do well, <laughs> not, <laughs> not my fault. Not not not. Yeah, I I, I, um, I took up the reins of, of Million Dollar Portfolio in 2009, right, kind of in the smack of the middle of the Great Recession. Really, really interesting times. Um, so whether it was Hidden Gems or MDP before my time, um, I'm sure um, out of those 20 stocks, there's some some great winners, and I'm sure there's just a few laggards as well. <laughs> Yes. I will continue. While I discontinued my subscriptions in the mid-2009 because of job loss, I have continued to hold all of the stocks. Nice. Since I don't follow the companies, should I consider selling the losers and continue to hold the winners? And we chose this question because uh, even if you've never subscribed to Hidden Gems or Million Dollar Portfolio, yeah. we know that a lot of people have stocks in their portfolios that basically they just neglected. They forgot right. they had, maybe they inherited it, maybe they had an account with the advisor. So really the question is, what do you do with these stocks that you haven't been paying attention to for a while? Right. Universal question. The fact that he was a member of Million Dollar Portfolio really is irrelevant, as you say. So, it's an interesting question, and it's it's not like cut or dry. In, in general, I don't love the idea of holding on to the stocks and just ignoring them. But there there are times where uh, benign neglect is 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 okay, and especially if you're a long term buy and hold type investor as as we hope you are. So if you're going to buy blue chip stocks that you really believe that, you know, 5 to 10 years from now they're going to be just fine, they'll ebb and they'll flow, they'll go up and they're down, but they're going to continue to to grow and produce nice earnings and you know, pick a stock. I don't know, is that Berkshire Hathaway? That's when I think of a blue chip stock it comes to my mind. Even let's Apple would be fine. I think it's okay to own those stocks for the long term and and not Get bogged down in the quarterly or or even annual um, goings on at those companies. Now, twenty stocks. I'm going to guess that there are some of those, maybe half or more, that probably don't fall under the the category of blue chip stocks. Set it and forget it. Um, and those make me a little bit n- more nervous. So, 
I think each investor has to make a decision. Do I want to spend a little bit of time? And when I say a little bit of time, I mean maybe quarterly, checking up on my companies, seeing how they're doing, checking, uh, reading the latest earnings release, maybe checking on how the stock is doing. Or do I really have no interest in doing that? If you have no interest, then I would say you shouldn't own those stocks, um, and you can go to plenty of other type mutual funds, ETF, index-based products to get exposure to the stock market. Nothing wrong with that. I have plenty of that in my own portfolio. But if you are um, kind of a foolish investor who does enjoy, um, you know, rolling up your sleeves every now and again and checking on your companies, I think it's fine, you know, to hold. I like that he's diversified. Twenty is is a good number. So if one of those stocks kind of, you know, goes awry, you know, the whole portfolio um, should should do, you know, hopefully okay. Um, but you know, keep an eye. The one other thing I'll say is, sell the losers, hold the winners. Like to me, that's not a thing. Um, it's it just you know, a loser today could be a humongous winner down the road. Even though so, it's been ten years. That's a that's a that's a fair point, but it's really, I, that's a fair, maybe it's a starting point to do a little bit more research and to figure out why has have some of those stocks done poorly versus why have have some um, risen quite dramatically. But I, it may, it's just a starting point for me. It's not an end point or a decision point. Not a hard hard and fast decision. Exactly. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by 23andMe.com. 23andMe.com is a genetic service that can help you discover where your DNA comes from around the world. You can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, and Africa. With your 23andMe reports, you can explore your connection to the world in a whole new way by traveling to the places that reflect your DNA. For instance, I found out that I'm a little bit Mongolian. I can see that. Really? I don't know. I can see you like... On a horse with a bow and arrow? No, actually, I can't see that. <laughs> I thought it was pretty cool, though. Turns out I'm also... So, when I took it, you may not remember this, Rick, but it turns out that I have a lot of Neanderthal. <laughs> and I was like... That is know. not surprising. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to feel about this. What does this mean that I'm a pretty high percentage of Neanderthal? I think Neanderthal is pretty hip right now. It's good to be Neanderthal. Is it? <laughs> now that people are finding out that they have Neanderthal, it's kind of a cool thing to have. Well, all right. I'm in the cool crowd. <laughs> Thank you, 23andMe, for letting me know that. Visit 23andMe.com slash fool. That's the number 23-A-N-D-M-E dot com slash fool. What will be your DNA destination? We are in the middle of the second longest bull market run on record in the U.S. Barron's has called it the bull market we love to hate. It's the little market that could, despite the naysayers year after year, the market just keeps chugging upward. So I decided to do a little search and see what stories CNBC has done in the last week. So some of the headlines were two of the three pillars holding up the bull market are crumbling. A meaningful market correction is close. Market crash is still two years away, and the bull market could continue forever. So I'll take that one. Even on CNBC, even on CNBC, there's some powerful, um, strong opinions on on this market. And so we asked Ron Gross to come in and talk to us about what is an investor to do. Like you just, everyone's just doesn't know what to do. Yeah, well. It ain't easy, is it? No, no, it's <laughs> not, and I wish that it was. So, uh, Ron, thank you for joining My us. My pleasure. So, let's start with talking a little bit about why some of the reasons why the stock market has done pretty well. Yeah. And, and Ron and I talked about this. We came up with five 
I just I do want to go on record first and say there is no such thing as a bull market I love to hate. I love all bull markets <laughs> equally the same. They're my friends. Right. But I understand why they have that headline, right? Because as opposed to the 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 bull market we saw in the dot com bubble yep. and then the one the run up before the Great Recession, there was a lot of enthusiasm about those. For this one, I think a lot of us have been kind of skeptical about it, mm-hmm. but it's, it just keeps going up. Not only enthusiasm, but irrational exuberance, some may say. I was managing money during both of those pullbacks, corrections, whatever word you want to use. And I agree, there were interesting times and, and somewhat different than, than where we are today. Right. So let's talk about five reasons that might explain why the stock market has done so well over the last several years. And, and this current bull market started in March of 2009. So, number one, the so called Trump bump. Trump bump. So, responsible for some of the goodness more recently, certainly not from back when it started, as you just mentioned. But certainly at the end of 2016, I would say, is when we really got the benefit of some excitement around Trump. Um, Obviously, a very pro-business candidate at the time, now president. And the promise of, we'll call it the trifecta, of tax cuts, reduced regulations, and perhaps an injection of up to a trillion dollars with a T into infrastructure has gotten some folks very, very excited. Now, whether that excitement is warranted remains to be seen. This is not a political show, so we won't we won't opine politically. But um, it is going to be difficult for him to get a lot of those things through the Congress. We've seen that already um, with health care. A trillion dollars is probably an aggressive number anyway, probably more hyperbole than reality. Um, taxes, perhaps um, that that would be nice nice to see, and I think we are seeing reduced regulations. And again, depending on what side of the environment argument you sit on, or, or other types of, of of fences, you're either happy with that or not. Um, but it is theoretically good, at least in the short term, for the stock market. Right. So number two, we have earnings, and that is they've actually done pretty well. Yeah. 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 Um, about 80, 85% of the companies in the SP 500 have re- reported so far. We're, we're right kind of still in the middle of, of what we call earnings season around here. And we've seen upwards of 70% of SP 500 companies beat expectations for earnings. Now, that's pretty strong. In, in the end, really what drives stock prices and stocks are earnings or cash flow, if you want to get really technical about it. But we don't need to get technical right here. Mm. Um, so, if, if earnings keep growing and, and companies keep putting up good numbers, then that should be positive for the market up to a point. At some point, prices get so out of whack in relation to earnings that even better than expected earnings won't help. Um, but I don't think we're, we're, we don't seem to be there yet. So, the fact that companies are actually producing Producing strong or stronger than expected profits is positive for right. sure. And, and a lot of the criticism of the bull market was that the economy overall was actually kind of sluggish. And in the first quarter, we had GDP growth of less than two percent. Second quarter is coming in looking a lot better, possibly. Um, but then when you when you look at the earnings for companies, it actually does look like things are going pretty well. Agreed. Um, and if 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 we get tax cuts, they'll look even better, quite frankly. Right. But forgetting about that, from an operational perspective, are, are people buying things that companies are selling, and are co- and are companies keeping costs under control and bringing dollars to the bottom line? And it appears for now the answer is yes. I don't think we're going to see three three or four percent GDP growth as, as Trump sometimes talks about anytime soon, perhaps ever. 
I think those days might be behind us, especially the way the demographics have shifted in this country um, and, and the, the population and the aging population. But having said that, things are relatively solid from an earnings perspective. Right. So, let's look at number three, one of the big explanations, at least, of certain indexes, and that is the rise of the so-called FANG stocks. Now, FANG is often Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and then Google, the G for Google. Of right. course, now it's Alphabet. Alphabet yeah. And then some people will draw it out to be FANG <laughs> to include mm-hmm. the other A for Apple. Yeah. And and these stocks are, are very, very strong. The, the sector, if you want, the sector at large, information technology is very strong, up, up more than 20% this year. Um, and those, I mean, Facebook's up 49%, Netflix 47%. And, you know, if you own these stocks, more power to you. Um, but they certainly, even if you own index stocks or index funds that have these stocks as a component, and most do, and they're pretty big components at this point, um, you're doing you're doing well. Now, does that mean the market as a whole has not participated in all this goodness? Um, perhaps not to the same extent, but for the most part, we are seeing a, a relatively broad-based rally. This year, small caps aren't, aren't doing um, as well as either the Dow stocks or the S&P 500 in general. Um, but they did have a nice run-up um, at the end of last year, so maybe they're just taking a breather. But we are seeing a broad-based rally, a broad-based bull market, just not as strong as if, if you're fortunate to own these FANG stocks. Right. When you look at the FANG stocks and you include Apple, all of them but Netflix are among the top 10 holdings in the S&P 500. So, that explains a big part of that index's performance. If you were, you know, the S&P 500 is market-weighted, meaning the biggest companies have the bigger, biggest impact. If you look at an equal-weighted S&P 500, yeah. which is everything has the same weighting, it trails the S&P 500 by about two percentage points. So, owning those big companies has really helped. For sure. Yep. So, let's look at number four, and that is what you could call a Goldilocks economics. Yeah, I think this is probably probably should be number one. I think this is most responsible for the bull market and the longevity of the bull market, and that is things are pretty good right now. You know, we have low interest rates that we've had for quite some time, even though we've had some some increases relatively recently. They're still historically low. Inflation remains tame, but the Fed has has a keen eye on that um, to make sure inflation uh, remains under control, and we'll see increases in, in rates and unwinding of quantitative easing as appropriate. Um, unemployment remains. Really low. Some folks would say we're at full employment for this country, and we won't argue what the definition of that is, or whether that's true, or what metric you're looking at. But for the most part, unemployment is really solid. And then the fourth thing, which we just talked about, was is earnings, and earnings are really solid. And gross domestic product, although not knocking the cover off the ball, is is still solid, solidly positive. So we're in an environment that is really great for stocks, especially when you think that interest rates are so low and there's no place else to go. Um, so that that has also been you know one of the reasons we've seen you know people pour money into stocks because you know only game in town really. Right, and a lot of people ask that like people are concerned about interest rates in relation to bonds and cash, and like why should that affect the stock market? But that's part of it. Yeah, people look at when you look at your investments, you're looking at alternatives. If you're not going to invest in stocks, where else are you going to go? And with rates so low. There's just not much attractive out there. Yeah, you and I do a lot of uh, time. We spend a lot of time looking at, at dividend stocks, which which are not necessarily cheap right now because folks have piled into those stocks, chasing yield and looking for yield because you can't get it uh, from your savings account or your CD or, or even you know a lot of bonds nowadays. Right. 
And our fifth reason is that one characteristic of this market, current one as well as over the last several years, is that volatility has been pretty low. Volatility is low. The the only reason I don't love this one, although it's important, I think, is that what is an individual investor really supposed to take away from this? And I think not much. Um, Volatility, the the VIX, as we call it, the index that measures volatility, is really a measure of fear, for lack of a better word. And right now, with volatility being so low, the, the the concern is that uh, complacency has right. set in, and that will eventually lead to problems and corrections. And let's face it, they're inevitable anyway. These corrections, um, but complacency, pretty much in life, is, is not is not a, is not a great great state to be in. And that's where people mostly talk about volatility and like why are folks so complacent? Why is there no fear in the market right now? What will that mean going forward? And for individual investors. You know, I don't. I don't necessarily know if it matters. Gotcha. All right. So, given all those things, we here at the Molly Field often get questions from members. So, what should I do? Yeah. Part of it is a little bit of fear, especially for those of our members who are close to or in retirement, mm-hmm. and they go, "Okay, should I be taking some money off the table?" People will often write and say, "We're at all-time highs. That means I should sell." And of course, the market is always hitting all-time highs when you look at its history. So that in itself. Isn't an indicator sell, but it still causes some people concerns when they hear it's the second longest bull market. Yeah, that implies that obviously it can't go on that much longer. Mm-hmm. So, given that, what should people be doing? So, I think what you just said is important. It can't go on forever, right? Newton taught us that you know what goes up must come down, and gravity is just—it's it, a fundamental <laughs> law. Um, and if we understand that, we perhaps won't be taken by surprise. We know that the market, in general, over time, goes up and to the right, which that's a great thing. But we also know from history that we're bound to get corrections, and we know that it's very hard to know when, and it's very hard to know how severe. So, if we break down the question, what should someone do? We can break it into kind of this three choices, right? So, the, the first one would be you sell everything or substantially everything. And you put uh, your cash in under your mattress, um, theoretically speaking, um, figuratively speaking, and you sleep at night pretty well, but you would miss out on all future upside. But then again, you'd be protected from downside. At the Motley Fool, we don't um, recommend doing that unless the anxiety is such that you really can't handle it. And in that case, that's fine. The stock market might not be a place for you. Or your life, or uh, age, or your life circumstances really require you not to have money, that money substantially in the market. Absent any of those particular circumstances, it's it's really not probably based on history the right thing to do of just sell everything because we know it's impossible to time the market. We 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 just we it's going to be luck, and we we kind of want to take luck out of this um, and not make that an investing philosophy. Um, so, as a general rule, we would say selling everything and moving to cash because the market is at an all-time high is probably not the best thing to do. So then you go to the the exact opposite, which is you stay fully invested and you ride out the storm. Now we also know from history that that is actually a very fine strategy to to undertake as long as you, as a human being, <laughs> can you know 
uh, you know, deal with the ups and the downs, the the volatility, and hopefully you aren't hyper, you know, focused on the ups and downs and the daily price movements of stocks. But certainly in a correction where it's going to be the headline of every news all the time, all the time, all the time, no matter what station you, you look at, you got you have to be able to to know your temperament and know that you can handle that. But we do know that if you're able to weather that storm, that the market has always, and there's no reason to believe it wouldn't, has always come back and then continued to create new highs later on. Um, the, the best thing would be during a correction, actually, is if you could um, inject cash into the stock market and, and buy low in the hopes that you'll you'll have higher stocks down the road, which is, as I said, historically is what happens. So, whether that's contributing to 401ks or finding some cash available um, to put um, into the market when things are low, that would be an absolutely wonderful strategy and perhaps the best. The third thing you can do is kind of a hybrid of both of these things, is maybe you take some risk off the table. You sell some stocks, you move into cash a little bit more. What will that do? It will de-risk your portfolio. It will insulate you from any significant downturns, but it will limit your upside too because that money you have in cash won't be earning anything or, or close to nothing. Anecdotally, I can say what I've done is I have sold off some of my index-related products, so ETFs that focus on the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000, raised my cash balance up. And then I'm putting cash to work selectively back into individual stocks, stocks that I've looked at, I like, I either think are undervalued or I want to be owner an owner of for five or ten years plus. Hopefully, both of those things undervalued and want to be an owner for five, ten years plus. Um, so I perhaps I'm still invested to the same extent, but I'm, I'm invested in individual companies that I really like rather than. Index products like the S and P five hundred, which you know, whatever happens to the market is going to happen to that. Um, that so that's kind of a um, a compromise, I would say, um, of, of shifting some capital around, um, and maybe perhaps in the end, if you don't put, end up putting all of that cash to work that you just sold out of your index products, you do have a little bit of, of what we call dry powder, right. um, <laughs> where you know, inevitably, when things do go down. You'll be able to scoop in and uh, and buy some stuff on the cheap. Yeah, uh, according to Fidelity, not only is the market reaching all time highs, but so is the average balance in retirement accounts. And I can sort of understand the fear. My wife and I were just talking about this the other day because we were looking at our retirement accounts, and and our retirement accounts are now at all time highs. And you yeah. do get that feeling you're like, well, well, that's great. This is awesome. Yeah. But I don't want to lose this. Right. You. There's. I understand that instinct. For sure. Yeah. And you would. I would understand that instinct as you get closer and closer to retirement, for sure. There comes a time where you may not need to take risk. Right? The only reason to take risk is to get return. It's, you don't take risk just for fun. And if there comes a time where it's not necessary or it no longer suits your needs, there, there is nothing wrong with, with taking that risk down. And you know, a planner like yourself would perhaps rejigger a portfolio to include more, let's call it bonds or, or stock alternatives, what, what have you. Um, and you know that's based on your circumstances. Someone in their twenties would, you know, usually be taking on much more risk than someone in their sixties. Not always. Um, certainly, you know, if you're sixties and you don't think you're going to need most of your stock portfolio to live on, you can be investing for your heirs and take on just as much risk as you did when you were in your twenties. Right. But for most of us, that's probably not the case. We're going to be more conservative 
um, and, and, and invest for our retirement. And in that case, you do probably want um, some more conservatism injected into the portfolio. Yeah, people really want like a just a hard, solid answer. Sell now, <laughs> buy now. But it's so, it's so, I mean, here at the Molly Fool, we always say it's how well you can sleep at night. Correct. And that's really, it's everyone's right answer is going to be different than the next person's. Agreed. If forced to give an answer, a general answer for everyone, it would be to stay the course. Don't make yeah. any major moves. Stock market goes down for sure. And history tells us that the stock market will go back up after that. Ron, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, I want you to stick around because I want to hear what your plans are for investing for the upcoming uh, solar eclipse. <laughs> <It's> wonderful. <laughs> Great. I'll be here. <laughs> Once upon a time there was light in my life, but now there's only love in the dark. Nothing I can say, a total eclipse of the heart. Oh my goodness! The postcards have come in. So let me just go through that here. Do you want to like look look at all those? Look, look at, at all, all those. those postcards. Rod and his wife are traveling the Mediterranean. Katie, our little helper, you might remember she recently read the disclaimer for us. She went to Mendocino with her family. Jeff is on his honeymoon in Hawaii. Wow. Steve is at Knott's Berry Farms, which, like the show, he says is wholesome family fun. But he put the, that in quotes. Wholesome. Yeah. Yeah. So. so why, why am I in the office? Everybody <laughs> seems to be leading a much more exciting life I than know. me. Matt is in Portugal, uh, drinking beer and eating octopus. Brian wrote from the oldest bar in California. Wow. Tim and his wife are having a weekend getaway in West Virginia. Kevin, I think, lives in Thailand. Uh, Dave took in some contemporary art in Boston. Ted is doing some wine tasting in Northern California. And Bill sent us a postcard uh, that had a cool solar eclipse stamp on there. Anyway, so Fancy. that's my segue. Yeah. Because maybe you've heard. <laughs> I've heard a little bit. Maybe you've heard that there's bit. a solar eclipse coming and that it will span from Oregon to South Carolina on Monday, August 21. So, yeah, I just want to know how are you guys planning to invest for the solar eclipse? <laughs> <laughs> Very carefully, not looking directly at my investments at any time. And with plenty of, plenty of UV protection. Just so much bling. It's just, oh, oh, the light refracting off my pile of gold. Um, so, reflecting, not refracting. Anyway, so I was thinking someone out there has to have done a study about whether solar eclipses impact the stock market. So, sure. Doesn't it only happen this like once every billion years? Oh, no. There are tons of solar no, no, and lunar eclipses one, all the time. Oh, they're all the time. Really? It just doesn't always happen over us. I thought it was 150 years. Well, here, let me tell you. Yeah, go ahead. Let me tell you. Because guess what? What? Gabrielle Lapori from Copenhagen Business School did a study on whether eclipses have an impact on the stock market. So, they theorized that eclipses are generally regarded as unlucky in both Eastern and Western culture, which I was like, I guess. I mean, we yeah, all go sure. out and stand and look at them, but whatever. Anytime the sun goes away, that might be a little <laughs> might troubling. Might be a little scary. <laughs> um, so, they think that maybe they would have a negative impact on the market. So, they took the dates of all 360 62 lunar and solar eclipses that have been visible anywhere in the world from 1928 to 2008. And then they looked at the movement in four major stock indices in the U.S., so leading up to the eclipse. So, basically, they found that, yes, in the days leading up to a solar eclipse, the markets fall. And not only that, but also volume falls as well. And then, subsequently, after the solar eclipse, the markets rebound again. And it also correlates to how much media coverage there is and how serious the solar eclipse is. Um, they found that, are you ready for the numbers on yeah, how please. much, on how you need to start investing for your solar eclipses? It better be more than fractional. 
found that an average investor who bought the uh, the Dow at the end of 2008 would have multiplied their money 37 times by now. However, if you were strategic with your investing around solar eclipses and bought when stocks took a hit and then sold once they rebounded, you would have multiplied your money by 55. So, 37 versus 55. But you are not advocating any of us do that, right? Oh, I'm absolutely advocating (laughs) that we do that. I'm selling everything right now. Yeah. Well, you got to wait a few days. So, it'll be a couple days leading up to it. Okay. And then, and then, like actually, literally during the solar eclipse, I want you to sit at your computer and just be ready to to pull the trigger on everything. And then go through everyone's desk drawers because we're all going to be out. We're on all going to be out on the balcony. <laughs> that's true. At this. <laughs> all right. Well, that's the show. I want to thank Ron for coming in. Thank you. My pleasure, always. Uh, only you know how much of an editing job this show can be. You and Rick <laughs> and us. So let's. Uh, I also want to thank a few a few of you who recently wrote reviews for the show on iTunes, including Madeline. She's a 26-year-old who thanked us for the insight, and Salonay, who didn't think Bro did a good enough job explaining the Coverdell. So, you do better. You wait, folks. You're going to have a whole episode devoted to the Coverdell. (laughs) The show is edited ominously by Rick Engdahl. Our address is 2000 Duke Street, 2nd Floor, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314, and our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. (laughs) 